Thank you, Maggie, and praise band, reminding us how good God is. And uh, so we are so blessed to serve a good, loving God. Amen? I hope you've got your Bibles open, and we are in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and we've been in a series for the last few weeks. One more, one more next week, and we'll conclude this series. But we've been in a series entitled, In His Image. And God created you in His image, and He has given you... And he has given me a sacred duty. And so to be made in God's image means that we can fulfill this sacred duty that God's given us. So what is your sacred duty? What is it that God expects of you and me? So let's look there in Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 through 28. And let's see what God expects of us. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now I want you to turn over to the next page to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And in Genesis 2, 15, it says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. Now this morning, I want to give you three aspects of our sacred duty. And I think they're found here in the opening pages of Scripture. We are to dominate we're to procreate, and we're to cultivate. Now, God made you, and he made me to reflect his image, and he did that whenever we dominate, procreate, and cultivate. So now this morning, if you're taking notes, I've got bad news for you. There's a lot lot of points this morning. But I've got good news. I hope this is going to encourage you in some positive ways. And so the first thing I want you to notice is that we are to dominate. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, It says that we are to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So what does it mean to have dominion? What does it mean to subdue the earth? It means that we are to rule over the earth. We are to exercise power over the earth. And so as image bearers, we have a position of authority in the earth. God now ultimately has sovereign rule and reign over the earth. God is ultimately in charge of the earth, but he has delegated uh, responsibilities to those who are created in his image to rule and have authority over his creation. I kind of think that's what David had in mind when he wrote Psalm 8, verses 5 through 6. David in Psalm 8 was thinking about man. He said, God, what is man that you're mindful of him? And then he says in verse 5, you have made him a little lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. God has given us, as image bearers, an authority to rule over his creation. And the way that we exercise authority ought to reflect the one who owns creation. Do you know who owns creation? God owns this earth. The Bible says in Psalm 24:1 that the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. And so the way that we have dominion ought to be very respectful of the one who owns it. 
And so we don't need to be wasteful. We don't need to be destructive. We don't need to be abusive. In fact, when we are wasteful and destructive and abusive to God's creation, then we are sinning against the Creator. And so we need to be careful how we treat creation. You know, lately, and maybe you've noticed this as well, I've, I've spoken to some of you about it, but lately, sometimes when I'm riding through our community on different highways, I begin to notice the amount of trash on the sides of our highways. And I begin to think, you know, it looks like our, the sides of our highways are becoming like a landfill. And that is not a good way to be a good steward of God's earth. I mean, one way that you can begin to be a good steward is putting trash where it belongs, in the trash can. One way we can be a good steward is to recycle those things that can be recycled. We need to be good stewards of God's creation. Now, having said that, we need to use the resources of the earth. God has given them to us for our enjoyment and for our benefit. I mean, can you imagine, for just a moment, what God thought when he saw Benjamin Franklin flying his kite in an electrical storm. You know, I think God said, finally, y'all going to realize you can tap in to electricity. I mean, I've been, ex- I've been explaining it to you or showing it to you for thousands of years, but nobody has really found a way to harness it. And so, it really, in, in, relatively speaking, it's only been a, a short amount of time that we've been able to harness electricity and take advantage of it. How many of you are thankful for electricity? Aren't you? Yes. We've been able to harness it. And when I was growing up, I used to hear older people talk about the good old days. And I guess those good old days were the more simple days. And when my dad would hear that, he'd say, you know what, I think we're living in the good old days. He said, because in the days that people were referring to, I didn't have running water in my house. I didn't have electricity in my home. He said, we're living in the good old days because we're benefiting from all the resources that God has given us. And so we need to use the resources of the earth for our good. You know, there's a lot of discussion these days about using oil. You know, God gave us the resource of oil for our benefit. Now, we do need to be responsible how we use it and how we use those resources, but those resources are for our enjoyment. God wants us to use those resources and our innovative abilities to take advantage of them. Now, let me give an example. A few years ago, a friend of mine and a dear brother in Christ came to visit us from Burkina Faso in West Africa. He came to First Baptist Church. He preached on a Sunday morning. Maybe you remember. Well, one day, he and I were riding out to my house, and he looked on both sides of the highways, and there were cornfields just everywhere. And he thought, how in the world is it possible to harvest all that corn? Because in Burkina Faso, they harvest corn by hand. And he saw all these cornfields. He said, it's just too impossible. And we said, well, yeah, one person harvests that corn sitting in air conditioning. And he couldn't imagine it. But as we were riding down the road, one of my friends was cutting his corn on his combine. His name is Carl Coleman. And so I pulled over, and I let Patrice, his name is Patrice Penn, I let Patrice watch Carl cut that corn in that combine. And he was just enamored by it. And so Carl saw us sitting over there, and he pulled over, and He stopped, and I told him who Patrice was and why he was so interested in his combine. And so Carl took him over, and he showed him exactly how it worked. He said, do you want to ride in it? And Patrice's eyes got as big as saucers. And Patrice got on that combine, and he went through that cornfield. He watched it work. He was amazed. And Patrice made me take a picture of him sitting on that combine. There he is on the screen. 
He said, take a picture because nobody will believe this thing exists when I go back home. And you know, if it weren't for oil and it weren't for our innovation, there would be no combine. And Patrice made this statement. He said, if we had a combine in Africa, we could, we could feed multitudes of people. God has given us these things for us to use for our betterment and our enjoyment. And we are to exercise dominion over the earth. But you know, we're also to ex exercise dominion over the animal kingdom as well. I mean, we're created in God's image. Animals are not created in God's image. You know, we are innovative and animals are instinctive. And let me see if I can explain that. Uh, you might say, well, you know, I've seen animals be innovative. Well, you've seen them be instinctive. I mean, you ever watch a beaver build a, a beaver dam? Or a bee make a beehive? That looks innovative, but it, in, in fact, it's just instinctive. Uh, beavers were building beaver dams 2,000 years ago the same way they do now, and 2,000 years from now, they'll do the same. But we are innovative. We don't live the same. We live differently. Why? Because we've used the th resources that God's given us, and we've been able to innovate, and now we live in modern homes with modern comforts. I mean, we can just speak, and the lights will come on. We have air conditioning, and we have the Internet. I mean, how many of you have a cell phone this morning? You know, a, a hundred years ago, that was just a dream, and now it's a, a reality we take for granted. And so God created us in his image that we might have dominion, and we might have dominion over the earth, but also the animal kingdom. How important is it for us to have dominion? Did you know that you could pay a lot of money to buy a champion breed dog? You could pay a lot of money, but if you don't bring that champion bloodline animal into your, under your dominion, then he's just a dog. In fact, I've learned a lot about dogs and training dogs from Jeff Matthews. Jeff Matthews is really a, a, a professional dog trainer. He's trained champion dogs through the years. He's taken them to competitions and, and won competitions with them. And, and uh, one, one, one day, we asked Jeff to bring his champion Boykin Spaniel to our worship in the park. His name is Tucker. And so he brought Tucker to the park that one Sunday afternoon to demonstrate how uh, this Boykin Spaniel responded to his master like we should respond to our master. And so he brought Tucker to the park. Now you have to keep in mind, a dog's nose is like a sonar. And so at the park, he can smell everything that has walked across that park. Every person, every squirrel, every bird, every dog. And his nose was going off like fireworks on the 4th of July. And so Jeff brought Tucker out there. And so Tucker, in his mind, he wanted to pursue every scent that he could smell. But Jeff had brought him under dominion. And so he didn't follow what his natural instinct would have been because he was now under the control of the master. He was under the dominion of his master. Now, we train animals so that we can benefit from animals, not abuse them, but so that we can benefit. And so to train them does not mean to abuse them. We need to be good stewards of God's creation. And God told Adam that we're to have dominion over the birds, the cattle, the fish, and everything that creeps. We are to dominate. We're to have dominion, to rule. But we need to be good stewards. We're also, not only do we need to dominate, we are to procreate. 
we to reproduce. In verse 28, God said to be fruitful and multiply. And God made them male and female so that they could reproduce. And this morning, you ought to thank God for making them male and female. Because without that, none of us would be here. It takes a male and a female to reproduce. And one of the purposes of marriage is to procreate, is to reproduce. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, after the flood, the Bible says that God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And then in Genesis chapter 35, verse 11, God was talking to a man named Jacob. And God said, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, God's design was for married couples to have children. That's the normal way. That's the natural way. It's for married couples to procreate. But you know, we live in a fallen world, don't we? Things aren't always like God intended them to be because we live in a fallen world. Not all couples can have children. Some couples would love to have children, but they cannot for various reasons. And so things aren't what they were intended to be. You know, Kathy and I made a very difficult decision years ago not to have children because we knew the possibility of our child having Huntington's disease. And so we made that difficult decision. You know, in studying for this message, I found an interesting article by John Piper. And John Piper made an interesting point. And this is what he said, and I want to quote it. He said, the purpose of marriage is not merely to add more bodies to the planet. The point is to increase the number of followers of Jesus on the planet. God's purpose in making marriage the place to have children was never merely just to fill the earth with people, but to fill the earth with worshipers of the only God. And he went on to say marriage is for making children disciples of Jesus. Now, you might not be able to have children, and maybe you don't have children, but you can make disciples of Christ. And so we can procreate in different ways. And one way is to bring life to a person who is a dead man. And we do that by making disciples of Jesus Christ. So it's not just about making children. It's about making disciples of Christ. Now, I do want to remind you that in Psalm chapter 1, verse, uh, Psalm chapter 127, verse 3, the psalmist said, Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. Now, I just want to say this morning, I'm so thankful for all the little babies that have been born in the First Baptist Church this past year. And I'm looking forward to the ones that will be born in the First Baptist Church this year. We've been blessed to have all those babies being born here at First Baptist. I'm thankful for our young couples having babies. And I'll just say this to you, Mom and Dad, your role isn't over when you make children. You need to make your children disciples of Christ. That is your ultimate goal. And as a church, it's our joy. It's our privilege. And it's our responsibility to come alongside you and to partner with you to help you make your children disciples of Jesus Christ. But you might be here today and you might think, you know, I'm single. And I don't have children. Or maybe you've never had children. Maybe you're a man here or a woman here and you've never had children. Or maybe you have children and they're already grown. But let me just say this, you can be a father and you can be a mother to the children around you. And I think about 
in, in Romans 16.13. The Apostle Paul was a single man, but this is what he wrote in 16.13. He says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. What was Paul saying? Paul was saying that Rufus's mother was like a mother to him. It wasn't his birth mother, but she was like a mother to him. You know, I can relate a lot of things when we were doing youth ministry at Mount Calvary. And Kathy was my helper. And one of the things that Kathy did, she helped mother a lot of the young people in our youth group. Well, one of those that she was a mother figure for was a young man by the name of Casey Dayton. And so he saw her as a mother figure. And so every Mother's Day, when he was in high school, he would always send her flowers on Mother's Day. Well, Casey is married now. He has children of his own. He lives in Atlanta, Georgia. He works for Chick-fil-A. But he still remembers Kathy on Mother's Day. And he has ever since. You don't have to give birth to be a mother. You don't have to give uh, birth to be a father. You don't have to give birth to procreate. We procreate when we make disciples of all nations. You know, that was Jesus' last command to us, wasn't it? Go and make disciples of all nations. So we are to dominate and we're to procreate. But let me give you this last one. We are to cultivate. You know, that word cultivate has an interesting meaning. If you go back and look it up at Latin root, it means to labor. It can mean to till or to make ready, but it can mean labor. And God designed you and God designed me to work. He designed us to labor. And we demonstrate our likeness to God by our work. We reflect God in our work. That's a sacred duty. We're created to work. You know, sometimes... I don't know about you, but sometimes we work hard not to work hard. You know, I heard a story about this couple of guys that were working in a, a plant, a manufacturing facility. And one of the workers said, you know, I, I think I can make uh, the boss give me the day off. His co-worker said, well, how do you intend on doing that? He said, well, just wait and see. And so he heard the boss coming down the hall. He ran and jumped on the table, and then he started hanging from the ceiling. And so the boss walked in and said, what in the world are you hanging on the ceiling for? Why are you doing that? He says, I'm a light bulb. I'm a light bulb. I'm a light bulb. And that boss, he felt sorry for him. He said, you know, I've been working you too hard. You've lost your mind. You think you're a light bulb. He said, I'm going to give you the rest of the day off. Go ahead and go, go ahead, just leave early. Well, his co-worker saw him leaving. He started to walk out behind him. And the boss said, well, where are you going? He said, well, I'm going home too. I can't work in the dark. <laughs> you know. I mean, we look for ways to get out of work. You know, some people think that work was part of God's curse on man. Work is not a part of the curse. Work is part of God's creation. We're created to work. I mean, if you go back and read Genesis 2.15, we just read it a few moments ago. God put Adam in the garden to tend it before the fall ever took place in Genesis chapter 3. So God created you to work. Work is part of reflecting God's image. Did you know that God is a worker? God is a worker. In the very first two chapters of Genesis, we see that God is a creator. He was doing something rather than nothing. Today, we have a generation that sits on their government entitlements. I'm not talking about those who can't work. I'm talking about those who can and won't work. But God is at work. God is a working God. And work is a reflection of God's activity in creation. God wasn't just sitting in heaven twiddling his thumbs with nothing to do. God was busy. He was active in creation. In fact, 
The Bible sometimes describes God as a composer, as a metal worker, as a potter, as a botanist, as a farmer, as a winemaker, as a shepherd, as a priest, as a tent maker, as a builder, as an architect. God is a working God. In fact, Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 says this. On the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. God is a working God. Did you know that Jesus is a worker? When Jesus lived on this earth, he was a worker. Do you know what his vocation was? He was a carpenter by trade until he was 30 years old. Now, when you hear the word carpenter, you might be like most people. We think about a, a man in a wood shop making like wooden toys or something like that. And that's how we view the word carpenter. But the, the Greek word tekton, it meant like a contractor, a home builder. Jesus was a contractor. He built houses. When I thought about that, I said, you know, wouldn't you like to have had one of the houses that Jesus built? Those are the only ones that were actually square. You know, Jesus understands what it's like to work. He carried wood. He carried building materials. He knew, what, he knew what it was like to work in the heat of the day. He knew what it was like to get sweaty and dirty. He understood what it means to, to be part of the daily grind of work. Jesus was a worker. In John 5, 17, Jesus said, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Jesus is and was a worker. When Jesus was 30 years old, he stopped being a carpenter, and he began his real work, the work of salvation. He came to this earth to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to save you and me. That was his work, the work of salvation. He came to die on Calvary's cross so that you and I could be saved. That was his work. John 17, 4, Jesus was praying to the Father, and he said, I've glorified you on earth, and I have finished the work you have given me to do. I finished the work. You know, Jesus said that the Father had given him a job. He had given him a work, a responsibility. Did you know that the Father gives you, and he gives me work to do on this earth? He gives us responsibility. The word vocation, we use that sometimes about what's your vocation. Do you know what the word vocation means? It means calling. God has given you a responsibility. He's given a calling to you. Whatever profession that you're in, whatever vocation that you have, that's God's calling for you in your life. And God calls you to your vocation. He gives you work to do. You are created to work and you are called to work. Now, there are different kinds of work. Work is not just what you get paid to do. You know, there are other types of work, right? I mean, I think about uh, the daily duties that we have, like cutting grass and washing clothes and cooking and, and uh, cleaning the house and washing cars and taking out the trash and filling holes in your yard because your dogs keep digging up holes. And then there's work at the church, right? Serving in the preschool and children's ministry. 
or serving in the praise band or working on the technology team or, or teaching a connect group or serving as a deacon or an usher, serving on our serve team, like maybe our finance team or our personnel team or, or one of our other ministry teams in our church. That's work. God's called you to that vocation. So you were created to work. But there's a corruption in work, isn't there? And work's been corrupted. I mean, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, I mean, work was pleasant. Work was always enjoyable. Work was a delight. But I don't know if you noticed this or not, we're not in the garden anymore. Work has been corrupted. Sin really has infiltrated our work, hasn't it? And it makes work difficult. You know, I've heard someone say, if you can get paid to do what you love doing, you'll never work a day in your life. Now, there are some people who really get paid to do what they love, but even, even in that context, there are things about their job they still don't like. There are things that still come up that frustrate them about their work. I mean, why? Because work is under the curse of sin. Because we are under the curse of sin. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, God said to Adam, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, I won't elaborate, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorn and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. You see, Adam and Eve really, I think, cherished their work while they lived in the garden. Everything was perfect. Everything was grand. Everything was working according to God's magnificent design. But when Adam and Eve sinned, the whole entire cosmos was altered. Sin was interjected into our work environment. Selfishness, pride, individualism, idolatry, rebellion, greed, among other things, were infiltrating our work environment. And to top it off, the cosmos won't even cooperate. Work has been corrupted. You know, every spring... All these weeds pop up in my yard. Did that ever happen at your house? And all I can do is thank you, Adam. Our view of work is different from Adam's. You know, I read this week how some people view work. See if you can relate to any of these. The first five days after the weekend are the hardest. I don't mind coming to work. It's the eight-hour wait to go home that I mind. Our computers went down at work today, so we had to do everything manually. It took me 20 minutes to shuffle the cards for solitaire. Work has been corrupted. What was once a joy has become a burden. You know, I think of the story of the ancient Greek poet Homer. He told a, 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 a Greek myth about a man named Sisyphus. He was a king, the king of Ithra, which was uh, known as Corinth today. Well, in Homer's mythical story, Sisyphus was guilty of trying to deceive the Greek mythological god. And so for that reason, they sentenced him to a, an eternity of labor. He was forced to roll a big stone boulder up the tallest hill in Corinth called the Acropont. And he would roll that up, and as soon as it would get to the top, it would roll back down. And he had to go all the way back down and roll it up again, and it would roll back down. And he's, a, he's really sentenced to do that for all eternity. And when I thought about that mythological story, it just really described the meaninglessness and the monotony that many people have in their work experience. 
monotony, the same things over and over. You know, Solomon shared a very similar feeling when he reflected on his own work. For Solomon, he saw no purpose in work. It's just a routine of doing the same thing over and over. And for him, it was meaningless. It's like being on a hamster wheel, chasing nothing. That's how he felt about work. This is what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 11. This is Solomon. Solomon said, I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on all the labor which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. And then he completed that thought a few verses later in Ecclesiastes 2.17. He said, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Can you relate to that? You ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like that your work was just meaningless? I mean, it's just, it was just uh, monotonous. Have you ever been working maybe around your home, maybe cutting your grass or doing your laundry or cleaning your house, and you were just elated that you finally got it behind you? But then you were soon deflated because you realized you had to do the same thing the next day and the next week. The same thing over and over. And so, sin, I mean, uh, uh, since sin has infiltrated our work, we get frustrated. You know what we do? You know what we do? We abuse work because of our sin. Well, how do we abuse work? Well, one way we do that is just by being lazy. I mean, some people refuse to work even though they can work. They choose not to. In Proverbs 26, 15, it describes a man who was so lazy that when he would try to feed himself, he would get tired from just having to pick the food up and bring it to his mouth. This is what, this is what Solomon described it as. The lazy man buries his hand in the bowl and it wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. That's lazy. Do you know why some people, and I'm not saying all people, I'm saying some people. Do you know why some people stay in poverty? Because they're lazy. Now you say, well, that's being harsh, isn't it? Well, I'm just going to quote scripture. Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing. But the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. And some people abuse work by just being lazy. But you know, some people abuse work by being workaholics. They want to work all the time. They're just busy working. The Bible says that our bodies need to rest. We need rest to recuperate and, and to replenish ourselves. God, in Genesis chapter 2, rested from his work. But some people are working two and three jobs trying to get ahead or trying to get rich, overworking. In Proverbs 23, 4, Solomon says, don't work to overwork to be rich. Do you know what happens when you overwork to be rich? It destroys your family, your family life, and it destroys your church life. There's a toll. You know, on the fire department, I've told some of the, the guys that work there, I said, you don't need to be at the fire station all the time. You don't need to be here all the time because if you're married, you have a wife and you have a life, and if you ignore them, you will not have either. You need to be careful about working. And overworking. You know, one of the grave dangers of overworking, I think one of the gravest dangers, is being pulled away from God. A lot of people overwork and they get pulled away from God. Paul understood that danger. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, he said, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Some 
Maybe some of you have strayed away from Christ because you're overworking to be rich. But you know, people also abuse work by worshiping their work. Let me give you this quote. Some people worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. Some people worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. Why? Because we are incredibly uh, idolatrous. We're always looking for something to worship, and if we don't worship God, we're going to worship something. And lots of times, people worship their work. Even the most noble professions can become an idol if we're not careful. And so we need to be careful about worshiping our work. Another abuse is that we can abuse work by being immoral. You know, some people will lie and steal and cheat so they can get ahead in their work. We can become immoral. And I'm going to quote scripture again in Proverbs 28, 6. Solomon said, Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one perverse in his ways, though he be rich. These are the corruptions of work, aren't they? Our work is corrupted. But I want to give you one last hope. We can find contentment in work. Don't you want to find contentment in work? That's kind of the lingering question this morning. Is How do we regain the meaningfulness of our work? How do we regain the joy and our fulfillment of work? Well, I want to give you three practical ways. And we're going to wrap this up. Very simple. Number one, let work be a means of worship. See your work as worship, not as a, 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 an object of worship, but as a means of worship. Worship God through the way you work. Do you know what the word profession means? We talk about it all the time. People make a profession. They make a declaration. They're telling a story. They're telling something about themselves. By your profession, you are telling us something about yourself and who you serve. What are you professing in your profession? Are you professing that your workstation is a worship station? Are you worshiping God through your work and your profession? In Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, it says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That means that our work ought to be a means of worship. We offer our work to Christ in worship. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, it says, And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, and not to men. Heartily, enthusiastically. Do you do that when you work at your vocation? Or do you do that when you're working in the church? Heartily, enthusiastically. Do you do that when you're cutting your grass and doing your laundry? Heartily, as to the Lord. Martin Luther, he said this. It looks like a small thing when a maid cooks and cleans and does other housework. But because God's command is there. Even such a small work must be praised as service to God. Even a small work is a service to God. Now the way you work is a testimony to others about the God that you serve. Whether your work is vocational or volunteer, you're offering an offering to God in worship and how you work. Now you're called to serve with a joyous heart. You work for Christ and not that company that you are employed by, you work for Christ. Not that organization that you serve, you are employed by Christ. The second thing is let your work be a means of service. You know, your mundane, monotonous job can be meaningful if you realize how many people benefit from what you do. 
when you begin to think about the people who benefit from what you do as a profession, it can bring meaning back to your vocation. Let me give you an example. If you're a teacher this morning, you are giving skills to those young people that will help them be successful later in life. I think about our, maybe you're in the medical field and you are taking care of people. You're ministering to them physically and maybe emotionally and spiritually. Isn't that what Jesus did? You use your, your gift or your vocation as a means to worship because you see how it benefits others. Or maybe you say, well, I work at a manufacturing plant. Maybe you work at Wyman Gordon and they make airplane parts. And you say, well, how can that be rewarding? Have you ever thought about the benefits of an airplane to people? I mean, airplanes take missionaries to the mission field so they can share the good news of the gospel. You know, people fly on airplanes so they can be reunited with family members. People fly on airplanes so they can take uh, vacations and enjoy God's creation. What you do matters, and it benefits other people. And so we need to make sure that we are seeing the benefits of our vocation. And let me just say this. I don't know if you all have ever heard of the Protestant work ethic, but the Protestant work ethic was like this. Your vocation, number one, is to glorify God. Number two is to benefit others. It's not to gain wealth. That's, our, that's the Protestant work ethic. And when you're serving, for example, here at church, have you ever considered what you do and how it benefits the people that you minister to? For example, you're working in the nursery. Have you ever considered the impact of your work in the nursery? You're providing nurture for those babies and those children. You are planting the seeds of the gospel into their little hearts and minds. Who knows if they will be the next Billy Graham? We don't know. You are given an a parent, the opportunity to sit under the teaching of God's word. Your work as a service matters to others. And I want to give you a, a verse that kind of really kind of iterate that. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, the Apostle Paul says this. It's a beautiful verse. He said, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor. Why? Working with his hands. Why? That he may have something to give him who has need. It's about benefiting other people. It's about a service. Let me give you this last point. You need to see your work as an opportunity to be creative and productive. Did you know that God is a creator? And when you are creative, you are reflecting the image of God. Because he is a creator. And he has given you and I the ability to be creative. God told Moses back in Exodus to build a tabernacle. Y'all remember that? Tabernacle. And Moses was in charge of making sure it was constructed. But he was not in charge of giving people the gifts and the creativity to get it done. And in Exodus chapter 35, verse 35, it says this. He, God, has filled them, the workers, with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue and purple and scarlet thread and fine linen and of the weaver. Those who do every work and those who design artistic work. What is it saying? God has given us that ability to be creative. And whenever you are being creative and you're being productive, you are reflecting the image of God. Anytime you invent a machine or write a book or paint a picture or calculate numbers, you're proclaiming that you are made in God's image. So here's the deal. When you fulfill your sacred duty, you reflect the image of God in you. And God has given us some sacred duties. Amen?
Now, you might think, well, how's the invitation going to go today? It's kind of a different sermon, isn't it? Let me give you some ways that you can respond. Number one, maybe you haven't been worshiping God in your work. And maybe this morning you need to say, God, I want to I use my worship as a means to wor- my, my work as a means to worship you. I want you to be honored and glorified in the way I work. And number two, you might be thinking, you know, I really haven't been making disciples of Christ. And maybe this morning you need to say, God, I want to be a disciple maker. I want to f- perform my sacred duty before you. Or maybe you might say this morning, you know, I've just been really negligent in the way I've treated God's creation. I haven't been taking care of it like I should. And maybe today you need to make a fresh commitment. Or maybe you're here and you just realize I'm outside the fellowship of Christ. You know why I can't worship God in my work? Because I don't have a relationship with God. And maybe this morning you need a relationship. You know, in my announcements I said I want to witness to you. Well, I really do. In just a moment we have our invitation. If you want to know Christ and you're outside of Christ, I want to invite you to come. I would love the opportunity to share him with you this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, I just want to thank you so much for the beauty of your word. The majesty of your word. The power of your word and how it just searches us out and finds our our vulnerabilities, our weaknesses, our sins, our faults. But Lord, I'm so thankful that in that you also give us hope. You give us instruction. You give us salvation. So I thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, as people here this morning, maybe they've, I don't know what they've heard. I don't know what you've been dealing with people about. Maybe this sermon didn't have anything to do with what you've been working on in their heart. But maybe this morning they need to come to surrender something to you. I just pray you help them to respond. But Lord, we do pray you help us to fulfill our sacred duties. To dominate, to procreate, and to cultivate. We want to honor you in the way that we serve. Help us to do that. Lord, if you, Holy, if your Holy Spirit has penetrated our heart, help us to be responsive to it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing together?